Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with Spitfire Jess Kimball Leslie, the creator, writer, and executive producer of Kings of America, a forthcoming drama series for Netflix about the Walton family, produced by Amy Adams and Adam McKay. This is Jess's first foray into Hollywood. Previously, she was more focused on writing about tech, the economy, and authoring her book, I Love My Computer Because My Friends Live in It. By the way, best name for a book ever. Her unfiltered passion for justice, equity, and uncovering the truth translates well to this new medium, and she tells me about the humbling, empathy-building experiences of pitching, networking, and production for TV. One of my favorite things, she says, is, my empathy comes from fury. Her fire is contagious. Please enjoy episode 13, Empathy Off Screen, with Jess Kimball Leslie. So excited to welcome you to the What's Betwixt Us podcast, Jess Kimball-Leslie. Jess is a writer, a tech analyst. Uh, uh, She wrote the book, I Love My Computer Because My Friends Live in It, which is my favorite title of all time. And currently, she is the writer and creator of a new show for Netflix uh, called Kings of America, produced by Amy Adams and Adam McKay. So that's a huge pivot, which I'd love to talk about. Uh, Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am obsessed with your podcast. It's my long road trip companion. Ah, oh, that's so delightful. I love it. Starting with a compliment, always great for empathy. Um, uh, how, I would like to know, because you made this major uh, 180 in your career pretty recently, how, how has that felt for you? How has that felt for your heart? Um, pretty awesome. I would strongly recommend changing your career in your thirties. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a sweet spot, I guess. Although maybe your forties too. I, I don't know yet. Uh, I I'm excited to be 40 in a, a couple of years. Um, you're kind of like, you've got some experience, you know, you're not a complete idiot the way that I was in my twenties and, uh, <laughs> and, but you're also, you know, I would hope uh, you know, fresh enough and, and still kind of new enough to the world that um, you can bring something original uh, as well. So it's been shifting um, careers has been the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my professional life. And it's, it's been um, absolutely the most, I'm so grateful. Like I just, I am, everyone makes fun of me on my team because like, I'm so happy to be in every meeting. I'm always like, the person who's there back in the days when we went to meetings, like I'd be there 45 minutes early on a late day, you know, like, right. like they used to make fun of me. Cause I would like, I'd, I'd go to the big meetings an hour and a half early just to sit in the <laughs> lobby and just to, you know, be excited to be there. Has, um, um, has Hollywood been on your horizon for a long time or was it unexpected for you? Oh, I always wanted to write. I always, I mean, I think I've, I've actually kind of, um, you know, I've, I've experienced a massive amount of failure. So I guess that, mm-hmm. um, you know, is helpful training and probably the necessary first step for anybody that 
wants to, you know, write professionally um, is you have to be really very, very willing to do it full time for free for at least a decade. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that, you know, I did that. I kind of like, I had the big book deal thing happen, or then I thought that was going to be bigger than it was. And, you know, so I've kind of, and then I had a second book deal where I was, you know, it was, that was going to happen. And then the last second it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've kind of like, I've, I took a lot of punches, I guess. And I just kind of like always got back up in the ring. So I think by the time something worked out, I was really ready for it because yeah, you know, it's uh, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment can be a, a hard thing to take. I mean, I, I completely relate as, uh, as an actor myself, um, I, you kind of get used to the rejections, um, but I find that they, they helped to soften me. Uh, they helped to soften um, my heart to other people who were going through similar rejections. Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I wonder how, how having, experiencing failure after failure has made you relate differently uh, to other people in the trenches with you. It, well, that's a great question. Um, it's, it makes me gravitate toward other people who, and I've certainly, you know, I am white and I grew up, you know, told I was always going to go to college. Mm-hmm. So I'm very privileged. Um, but I gravitate toward people who um, have, have pushed against, have worked against adversity to get to where they are, because I think that, um, you can see it usually or sense it very, very quickly um, in people and in interviewing writers to work on the show. I mean, I've just met some of the greatest people and who've pushed a lot against a lot more than I have. And it's just something about the way that they, you know, even first get on the phone with you. Um, You know, there's a little bit of a, like a magic frequency or something Mm -hmm. um, code between people who've, or, you know, the people have that have, that have seen some stuff. And I've always, I'm always drawn to that. I always kind of, I either, I look for it and I sense it or it's not there. I love that so much. A code, almost like a a secret language that you develop by, by being humbled, basically. Um. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Eating a little crow, you know, there's the, I guess there's a, there's a code that comes with it. So yeah, yeah, that's a lot of the, um, the, writers that um, I've really loved talking to, you know, all kind of have that in common. I can't imagine what it's like to be an actor because the amount of, you know, the, re- the rejection that actors experience, I, I certainly would not be strong enough for that. Um, I, it becomes, yeah. uh, I, I, I like to joke about it as savoring the crumb. So, you know, I, if I have the opportunity to have 30 seconds on camera for a TV show and it's going to take me an hour to get there and an hour to prepare before that, um, that's a beautiful crumb. I'm going to treat it like gold. And, uh, and it, it has always helped me um, to feel, you know, the empathy of the hundreds of other actors around me who are going through the same thing. So that moment of making eye contact in the waiting room, um, you know, sharing a pen or a highlighter uh, is what is what keeps me going. If I had to do it in a vacuum, I couldn't. It's, it's the other. That's stream. really lovely. That's, that is a really, really lovely way of putting it. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I'm not, I'm not strong enough to do what you guys do. That's so, so much to take on. And what a cool angle that you've got for navigating it to just like really learn to dial into the beauty of what's in front of you. Also, it's pretty damn cool to be on television for 30 seconds, by the way. Like that's, that's awesome. Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) 
But, okay, this isn't a show about me, although, of course, I always would love that. It is a show about <laughs> you today. And uh, I'm, I'm curious because this is a show about, about empathy at work. And I asked you to think about that um, ahead of time if you had uh, examples. And I would love to cover your feelings about empathy, how it's shown up where you are now in doing big fancy Hollywood things and where you were before as a journalist. So I guess, let, I guess let's start with where you are now and work backwards. What has your experience been being received and interacting with the other people at this, this high echelon? Um, the people that are working on our show are the kindest, most genuinely sparkling, <laughs> luminous people. I cannot say enough nice things about Amy Adams. I cannot say enough nice things about Adam McKay. Whatever you think you know about them, they're 50 times nicer and funnier in real life. Uh. You know, they both have bent over backwards for this show. They are both always there, you know, with the jokes that you need to hear before you go into the big pitches and the, you know, and the, and the, the motivational speech, you know, um, so they, the empathy oozes out of both of them and it's all like the, there are whole teams too. I mean, it's, you know, people that are that wildly successful usually have gotten there through the currency of, you know, talent and empathy. And so that's very obvious in as soon as you meet them they have the thing you know they have the the they they speak in the code right <laughs> hollywood in general i gotta say you know like i'm not saying i'm you know i'm i'm new to the world and it's I'm, i know it's not perfect and i will say i've i've had a lot of really great experiences and that the people that i've met have all just been you know wanting to do this storytelling thing for fantastic reasons and i have experienced more empathy uh, in this industry than I ever have in any other industry by wow. a large magnitude. So again, I'm green and I'm sure there'd be somebody listening who, you know, have had a different experience and I don't mean to invalidate that. But yeah, there's a lot of like really, really great people, especially in the corners of the world of the people with whom I'm collaborating, who are just like, they would come to your house for Thanksgiving and just like blend right in and be awesome and do the dishes, you know, like, it's that kind of person. I love that. So I love that idea of, and it's true. I mean, having been, having been in the showbiz world for a while, definitely not everybody is like that. And it sounds like you've really landed in a wonderful place, which you entirely fit into and deserve. And what I hope is that uh, more people like you and like them continue to be given opportunities so that it can trickle down and, you know, the rest of the industry can, can absorb some of that because. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, there's even, even people that we didn't end up working with. Like one of the craziest stories I have about someone who didn't know me from Adam being really, really empathetic toward me is that I blew a really huge meeting, <laughs> like, you know, five months into my Hollywood career, like a huge meeting with the head of Sony pictures. Oh my God. And this, this woman named Hannah Mangella and her uh, I believe uh, VP Stacy Mandelberg, but these two women are first of all complete powerhouses. I was so nervous to meet them. I would I flew out to LA it was last year about this time, mm -hmm. and my dad had just died a few days beforehand, and so I hadn't slept in like two weeks. I didn't want anybody to know what I was going through. I didn't want anyone to know my dad had just died a couple days beforehand. I just got on the plane, and I go out to LA to do this huge meeting by myself. 
and I was sick too. Uh, no surprise, of course, given given that I'd been sitting in a hospital for two weeks and sleeping in a hospital for two weeks. And I get there, and like I said, to know me is to know I'm the dork that shows up for every meeting three hours early. That's who I am, you know. And I just got confused. And I had there's a director going to be in this meeting, and the head of the studio, and you know, really the other head of the studio, and I'm late. And it was the worst taxi ride of my life. I was pleading with the traffic, right? I'm like oh. devastatedly upset. This is the like a kind of meeting that most people would absolutely, you know, give their life savings for and I'm late for it. And my I'm calling my agents and my agents assistants are, you know, calling their assistants and the studio lot is like letting everybody the guards know that I'm going to be running in so that I can like bypass the security process quickly so I can get into the right building so I can get up to the right floor so I can go through the security on the private floor you know because it's like all these things you can't just walk into a lot and I get up there and it's 46 minutes late and Stacy Stacy walks out and she just looks at me and I'm like if she screams at me I will be fine with it I will be like you know what Stacy Mandelberg like you should scream at me <laughs> I can't believe I'm this late but she just looks at me and for no valid reason she just goes don't worry about anything it's like we've been chatting we haven't caught up in months she's like everything's great do you want a water and I'm like no 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 I'm okay I'm okay she's like I got you a water <laughs> she's like here just take a sip for a minute she's just like just you know come in in a moment but like you're great. We we're really looking forward to talking with you. And so I take her advice. She was like, she actually talks me off this cliff. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, just going to take this incredibly kind woman at her word who has, you know, like I said, doesn't know my circumstance or doesn't know me, doesn't know I've never been late to a meeting, you know, and uh, that I'm freaking out right now. And, and I just go into it. And then I walk in and there's Hannah Mangella, who of course is, you know, runs Sony Pictures. Mm-hmm. And is you know made little unimportant movies like The Social Network, and um, <laughs> I'm looking at her, and I'm like, and she, first of all, how valuable is a minute of her time, right? And yeah. she was just like, oh, it's so lovely to meet you. Wow! And I couldn't even believe these two women, the kindness that they extended to me, and that we then ended up talking for like two hours, and I, you know, it, obviously, you know, the the project went to a different studio for a whole, you know, host of reasons, many of which, you know, are beyond any, any one individual, right? It's a big, big teams that make these decisions. And um, I swear though, the way that they treated me, I would bend over backwards to work with either of those women again. Wow. Like I would go to either of those women if like the studio was the smaller offer, you know? <laughs> I'd be like, no, 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 I'm going with Sony. Like I'm working with them. I, Cause now I know exactly who they are, right? Like I know how they'll treat me you know, on a phone call on a sure. Saturday morning, I know how they would treat me, you know, on at the premiere, you know, like I, I totally see who they are now by the kindness mm-hmm. that was extended to me for no good reason when I was an idiot. And it's moments like that, I think that teach you the value of being empathetic to someone when you actually have no when there's no reason why you should be, right? Because like they're really late for the meeting and you're the important person. Um, And choosing to just be kind in that is, I mean, it was such a big lesson to me. And I was like, wow, I just looked at both of them and I'm like, if I ever have the kind of power that you have, this is how I'm going to treat people. Yes, yes. This fills me with so much hope and I love it. And I'm not going to lie. I love that they were both 
women. Um, and uh, something that I've been talking about on this podcast a little bit is the idea of empathy, whether it's a, whether it has become a gendered word, whether bringing up empathy in a conversation oh. at work turns people off or, or, or makes them feel like they don't need to be involved because it seems too soft. And obviously this changes industry to industry. Um, but I, I do love the idea of women having places of power uh, because they are the natural nurturers. Um, and I think that does translate a little bit into, you know, treatment of, of colleagues or potential colleagues. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously it's an inflammatory generalization, but. No, it's not. It's uh, well-documented now through a number of uh, studies looking at, you know, EQ and its value or lack thereof in the traditional workplace. I mean, I think it falls into a, yeah, is it gendered? For sure, because, you know, the system of, of capitalism as practiced now in basically completely or barely regulated way in the United States mm -hmm. has nothing to do with empathy for human beings. It's subjugation and it's systematized and it's cleansed and it's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a colorful logo with a nicely kerned font is, is placed on the outside right. of the institution that usually in some portion of its supply chain either borders on slavery or is as close as you can get to it or it is. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at with capitalism right now. Most people, especially most uh, men in, in, you know, powerful jobs at these, you know, faux storied institutions don't know the first thing about economics um, or the fact that uh, all of the system of, you know, what we value in a society or in an economy is emotional. There's no ration to it, you know, like now we're getting a little bit into like theories of economics and behavioral economics and this, that, and the other, but it's like, it's all emotion, you know, like it's all irrational. It's all just, you know, people making crap up. Um, and if you, if you don't see that, then you're, you lack perspective and understanding of what's really happening. So I would say that not only are you right, I would say you're right on an even deeper level, um, which is that we're loath to admit that it's all bullshit. Like there was a, am I allowed to swear? Yes. Well, I'll stop swearing. There's a book by David Graver that came out in I think 2018 or 19 and it's called BS Jobs or Bullshit Jobs. And what David Graver is an anthropologist and he basically just went and he got dozens and dozens of corporate you know, white collar professionals to talk about how their jobs were just contributing absolutely nothing of value, not only to the company, but to society. Like they were just paper pushers or like they just went to meetings or they just were there to make their boss feel good and important, or they filled out some form so another form could get filled out or they gave notes or they wrote PowerPoints or this, that, and they just did nothing. And it's like, that is a, what we learned in the pandemic was that that is a huge percent of the way that the world works and we don't need it. And actually you can get away with a lot of these rituals and a lot of these rules and the world spins madly on. And I think that, yeah, it's a, it's all like a, a, a macrocosmic extension of the idea that, you know, it's not only do we undervalue empathy, we have systematically tried to pretend that none of us require it, um, um, it to the detriment of all of us. And that's really, really ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on all of this, truly. And uh, I think that it, it speaks even more highly then, like in contrast to, to this discussion of capitalism, speaks even more highly to this 
this meeting that you had um, with these yes. powerful women because they were what the empathy they were offering you was not transactional. There was nothing about it transactional at all. And as you said, they had nothing to gain from it. That's how you know that it truly is an interest in an, the well-being of another person. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, they, and maybe, sure, could you argue that, you know, Hollywood's a relationship business, you know, it's always good to just, you know, stay in the know with people and kind of just, because you, you know, where are you going to get your next job? And so there's just a lot of value yeah. placed on just knowing people and just generally trying to be a nice person. Yeah, did it make me want to work with them at some point? Absolutely, <laughs> you know, but like what in that, all of that, you know, it, the, is, is just layers on layers of, of things that are good versus <laughs> just layers and layers of things that are bad, like, you know, companies that purport to not really value empathy within their structure, whether it's in how they treat people or how the company's designed or, you know, what the power uh, divisions are, um, you know, pretending to be very rational and, you know, logical and dry and important. And then, you know, the truth of whatever it is that they make is usually with wage slavery and, you know, uh, skirted regulations and uh, right. other forms of legal thievery. Right. <laughs> and I think, did I read somewhere that you are, uh, that you were an econ writer as well, that you have a background? Yeah, furious one. I just freaking hate everything. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because like, you my empathy comes from fury. My empathy <laughs> comes from total rage. Um, it, it was, uh, that's still a story one of our producers, Betsy, always tells. She's like, oh yeah, we were in this meeting with McKay and Jess and McKay was like, why did you want to write the story? And that was my answer, like complete and utter blind, total consuming rage. Um, <laughs> is why because it just doesn't need to be like this right we don't have to make the world so crappy like we have plenty of money and or you know plenty of food we could make plenty of shelter like we don't have to have anything engineered the way that we have it now and so that that is like the entirety of my economic writing has just been screaming that something like this was going to happen quite obviously you know for the past 10 years wow wow so you you've been the town crier on this to no avail um really obvious like all economics boils down to these really amelia bedelia charts that are like do most people have enough to live you know relative to the things that the top people have you know, and if the answer is no, like we're cruising for a bruising, like you could see the Piketty style, you know, income inequality charts from 2012 and know that we were headed for a full out epic disaster, you know, yeah. and uh, but people pretend to be surprised. And then you could learn about things like automation. You could Google the word automation, you know, mm -hmm. and you could quickly learn that tons and tons of jobs are going to become you know, handed over to software and hardware and, and people will be, you know, kind of rendered obsolete um, en masse, but it won't happen. You won't get a piece of paper in the mail that says, hey, you're obsolete now. You know, like right. it'll just sort of happen to you and you won't even really know why, you know. The yeah, you'll figure it out. out. <laughs> you know, and before you know it, you're like at a Trump rally, you know, because you don't know what to do with your situation and how it happened. And so it's like, it was very easy to see all of this coming. It, it didn't take a genius. It honestly just took Google and like something of a frontal lobe if you were doing the kind of writing that I was doing. But yet it was still like, I mean, I can't even tell you how many conferences I went to and spoke at like five years ago, six years ago, so where people were just like, you know, 
refused to believe that automation and inequality would gonna, were going to combine to become these kind of two, you know, all-consuming exogenous factors that would lead us to um, a really dark place. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, I love, I, I wrote down the quote, my empathy comes from fury. That has been the driving force for your writing throughout. Like that's been the through line, uh, if I may, for, for all of your, your writing projects is this, this drive toward bringing equality and equity or, or at least shouting out where it was missing. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, it's fury. It's fury at the behavior of people that have so much and have, and have taught themselves to care so little about everyone else. It's, um, you know, it's like, be, you know, the New York thing when you, if, if you've ever been to a restaurant or with somebody like, you know, has a ton of money, like a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And then you watch them like parsimoniously calculate a 10% tip. Oh, yes. I was, for a, the I, waiter. was a server. I was a server oh. for years. So I definitely- Oh, so I should be interviewing you about- how wonderful rich people are at restaurants, how well behaved they are. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's a generalization. And I have to say that I had many, many extremely supportive, wealthy clients who were repeat customers who gave me extra, but there were also many, many who would uh, leave a 15% tip regardless, even though they were paying with a corporate card and they, exactly. they yeah, you just nailed it. You just nailed it. That's the, those are the ones it's not even your money. It's a corporate card. Uh, but yes, and then there were definitely, yeah, I was a server too all through college. And like, yeah, they were the people that would change your life for the day because they would just give you a super nice tip and they would just oh, yeah. make you believe in the world. So there are those people, but I'm more amazed by the existence of, you know, the other group where, you know, it's people that, like you said, have the corporate cards, not even their money, and they, they still have to be a monster um, about the whole thing. But then- and- it's that attitude. It's like that. It's that. It's the whole thing of like being on Instagram during the pandemic and realizing that there's an entire class of people for whom like this has been great. And that it, it's, it's that. Yeah. And I, but I think, I mean, and obviously I'm a little bit Pollyanna and very hopeful at the fact that the more, uh, the more issues like these are brought to light in a public way, the more people yes. can really hide from them. You know, couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, I think that's where my hope comes from is the same rage, which is that, you know, things are, are so bad now that you can't, you know, ignore them. It, it's a good thing. You know, it is an incredible and good thing that people have been out protesting, you know, day after day after day um, for Black Lives Matter, you know, since May. Like that is the kind of thing that we, we need. That's the kind of empathy and awareness that we need. So I'm excited. I'm excited too. I mean, in a way, I think a lot of the activism that we've seen uh, wouldn't have been able to take place like at at the, to the extent that it did if we hadn't all been, you know, in lockdown. Oh, Uh, for sure. For sure. um, Um, Which is great. And, and it's good to see, it's good to, that's where you really believe in, in human beings. And, you know, we, uh, our, our ability to make, you know, lemonade from lemons and, and the being handed, especially New York city, you know, these really, really this dire set of circumstances and then somehow find a way to turn it around and, you know, fight for social justice. And that is, you know, I'm, I'm sugarcoating a hardship that a lot that people are enduring to put their bodies out there and be a part of this movement. But it's like, it's at the highest order form of empathy to me. Like it, it doesn't get better 
and it, it bodes really, really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and it's been very heartening to see in New York, uh, to see it happen in New York and, and feel like I'm in the right place for, for history, like on the right side of history and New York city empathy capital. I mean, like I, <laughs> I freaking love New York. I, I just, I, 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 sm- I kind of scoff at all this. Like people are leaving New York talk that's happening now. Like, no, <laughs> no, it will never be dead. Um, anyway, I want to, let me bring it back a little bit to talk about you. And you said earlier that a lot of the, the empathy that you had encountered in Hollywood so far was head and shoulders above or a better experience from empathy in past workspaces. And I would love for you to expand upon that. I mean, I think that I, I had a, I have, I've had an interesting kind of existence. You know, I've been freelance, uh, self-employed, you know, for a long time, 10 years. And before that, you know, in the series of misfit jobs that you have in your 20s and things like that, like, I had really, I had a lot of situations where I worked for like, extraordinarily wealthy people by birth who were horrible human beings. And I think that colored my understanding of a lot of the city that I love, of New York, of people that are just born into this immense amount of privilege and then think of themselves as middle class, of uh, the, the cruelty that kind of can be, that is normalized in a lot of, you know, work situations that is all just various forms of, you know, people wanting to hold on to their power and make sure other people don't threaten them too much or this, that, and the other. But um, yeah, I definitely, you know, there's a lot of the economy, like a lot of the, a lot of the jobs that exist are, are things that, you know, most people wouldn't really want to do, which is such a bizarre concept to wrap your head around, right? Why, why does the, it's a, another old economic question too, which is a Keynesian one, which is about, you know, kind of, we should use technology to eliminate a lot of these, these kinds of work environments that human beings just flat out don't like. Yeah. And I, I think so that I definitely was, I, I found it much, much harder to exist and make something of a living and cobble together, you know, freelance gigs and like take the speeches that pay the bills and, you know, write the reports and write the articles and write the books and, you know, try to put together this, you know, career in media. Like I it definitely was a, 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 a much harder environment than, you know, Hollywood is kind of like has this clearer motive of people that want to tell stories because they think that stories help human beings help themselves to make the world better. Like that's a very straightforward forward, forward, forward purpose, you know, and it, it gives you a, a to-do list for your day and for your year and for your life. And I, I that's the, the cleanliness of that. I, I respond very well to. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a simpler existence. And I, I know exactly what you're saying. Having been, I mean, even still, uh, you know, up until I lost my last serving job a few months ago, uh, I had, you know, three or four different jobs really for the past 10 right. years to cobble together, which is, and, and waiting tables. That's awesome. That's your, that is putting in the hours. Yeah. But I, I have to say it for me, it's not the right answer for everybody, but for me, I really enjoyed it because I need the variety or I will go crazy. I cannot sit in an office 40 hours a week or I will go crazy, but I will say, <laughs> and I don't know if you had this experience as well, 
a lot of the empathy I found in those jobs, I found more empathy in unlikely places. Yes. You know, and at the bottom of the food chain, I would say, in terms of like who was actually making the money, money in society or who has the prestige. It was, it was the people who flew under the radar from whom I really felt the most empathy. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that the camaraderie you feel in these, um, you know, almost Stockholm syndrome, you know, a little bit, um, there's a better term for it, um, but work environments where you're in the trenches together with these other people and you're doing something like, like when I was a waiter in the summer, like we used to do weddings, you know, and we do like three weddings a weekend. You know, and by the time you've served your like 35th wedding with a group of people, like you're in it. You know? oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, a lot of, you know, what I was drawn to in writing about Walmart was the, the, not only the camaraderie that people feel um, or that's, that certain people, because it's, it varies store to store and I'm not, I don't want to make blanket statements about the biggest company in the history of the modern world, but um, you know, the, there are people that will tell you that, you know, my Walmart, you know, team is my family. I spend more time with them with my family. Like we run this store together. Like we're a really well run store. And like, regardless of, you know, what my opinion is of everything happening around them and above them in their day-to-day experience, they are, you know, truly making um, the best of it and making something that's really important and really just about the human connection of, of people being in the trenches together. Yeah, I love that. I always think of like for any time that I've served tables or catered and I've done my share of weddings and bar mitzvahs and I think about uh, in Dirty Dancing when when baby sees like the back of house for the first time, you know, all yes. the other employees. And I'm like, that's the place that I would rather be you know, to really feel like I can get comfortable and be myself and let loose, you know? That is such a great reference. I know exactly. I can see that shot. It's a beautiful <laughs> shot. But also, I, I, I'm, you know, I recently-ish rewatched the, that movie with my, my uh, teenager. I think it holds up pretty well. My kid was underwhelmed, but, um, <laughs> you know, these modern children, um, there's a lot of stereotyping. There. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe it only holds up reason. Okay. Well, but, um, yeah, I think it's that it's that, uh, yeah, I, I love, I love that. Like it's, and it's also, there is a little bit of like wonderfully rich irony in the world and that like, that's where the power is. Yeah. You know, it's like, I remember having the exchange with one of my with a with a mom of a of a you know one of my kids classmates you know so like one of those situations where you're you're together for your kids but you don't really have much in common and sure she was being really 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 rude to this waiter and i just was kind of like you know i don't know if you know how restaurants work but like there's this whole stage where they take your food you know in the back and there's no you know visibility or cameras or anything and and they can just kind of do whatever they want with it, you know? And like, <laughs> you're choosing to be really, really rude to this person who like gets to have all this secret alone time with the food that you're going to eat. And like, that's not really a choice that I make, you know, in life. And it's like, I, cause I'm like, I, you know, I, all the, all the power is, is back there, right? Like if you're, if you're a waiter, like you have the power to bring out like a free round of drinks or whoopsies forget to like run that bottle of wine on the transaction yeah. or like you can make, a different kind of revenge happen, you know? And so you're just like, you know, why, how is it that people don't understand, like, you know, this is how the world works, that there's always that back room, you know, of the yeah, people well, that 
<laughs> really kind of in charge. I think it's about, I think it's a level of awareness that gets cultivated over time, especially when you are a person who is dependent upon like the graciousness of, of others. And if you are, it's like, as you said, in, in Hollywood, you kind of have to act like a nice person because you never know who you're going to work with. And it's a very, very small town. Yeah. And I think the same goes for, for every industry. Like you're not everything. Yeah. It doesn't cost you anything to be nice to a person. And more often than not, you'll be rewarded for that. It is the, the, the easiest, simplest thing. I, I really, you know, I, I think the reason that people aren't is it speaks to like this other things that are, you know, like what's the question can then becomes, why aren't people empathetic? You know, if empathetic is so beneficial to all of us and so easy and so good for us and good for others. And, you know, there's no downside, right? Mm -hmm. Why aren't people empathetic? What do you think the answer to that is? I think the answer to that is about, you know, structures that we have put in place that we have chosen not to question. Mm -hmm. um, we've forgotten the, that we've made the whole world order up as it exists now and we can make it up a different way. I mean, I'm a big fan of things like modern monetary theory for that reason. Like I, I really, you know, giving people 600 bucks a week, you know, hasn't relative to the rest of the pandemic cost us that much. And it, it's, it did deliver a whole lot of value for people that were without employment. Like, absolutely. That's a form of empathy, mm. you know, and, and we didn't have it before because why? Because we'd structurally refused an idea of a universal basic income because we normalized cruelty. Mm. I mean, I think that's a really, I think that your question about, you know, empathy and feminization and its value and lack thereof in the workplace is a much bigger thing that it looks like at first. Oh, I totally agree that it's not, you know, it's the way it's treated in the structure now is as like a pretty sounding word, like, like lip service, uh, the, you know, makes a company yes. look better if they talk about it, but, yes. but for, for, in order for it to like really, really become like the underpinning of a structure that would have to replace profit really as the number one priority. Otherwise, yes. as long as profit is the number one priority. As long, as long as shareholders are the priority over employees and customers, they will always have these problems. And they, they really don't. One of the things I would, I would most say to, to younger kids mm -hmm. is, you know, you can make, there can be such a thing as a good company. There are good companies that are out there. You know, like you can pay your workers a great living wage and you can just choose to not become a senti billionaire. You know, you can say, Hey, if I, maybe my wealth is pretty well capped at, at whatever it is. Let's say you're a startup person and you're like, I can't, 10 million is, is tons of money. I don't need more than that. So why don't the rest just let's split it up, you know? And I, I think there, that used to be um, more of the model. And I, you know, one of the, one of the questions I, I have for kids is like, why are there no, good companies. Like, why is it impossible for me to live my life as an ethical shopper like, mm -hmm. and, and adhere to any moral code? Like I'm talking to you on a MacBook that, you know, was built with slave labor in China. Mm -hmm. um, I go running in Nike shoes, you know, that I don't I know they've tried to improve, you know, but how good are they? Like, I don't, where were my clothes made? You know, like I like ever it's all, there's nothing 
why is it we have, why is it we live among such a dearth of empathetic and ethical companies? And why not just start, you know, more of them? I would rather buy one pair of, you know, jeans every two years if I knew it came from a company where it's recycled material and the employees were paid a living wage. You know, like, where, when are we going to learn to shift the priority of our economy and shift the marketing message and, you know, stop kind of being consumed by, by endless consumption. Yeah. I mean, I would love that too. And I, and I'm really hopeful that it is moving in that direction. And in fact, you know, you are, you said you have a, a teenager. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I mean, you're, you're at close range to that generation. It seems from the outside to me that that generation is much more interested in ethical practices and, and things like that. Are you They're really, really smart? I mean, they're, they're onto so many things. It's so fascinating. Like they see the, they see the falsity in our constructs with much more clarity than we do. Mm. Um, they reject all kinds of norms, whether it's identity norms, you know, lifespan, career, professional norms, like all these different, you know, I guess that's the sick benefit of watching society fall apart, right? <laughs> like, that you're kind of like, oh, this whole society thing is like not really like this old jalopy is kind of barely rattling down the road now. Like, let's maybe do something, look at a different thing. Well, but I would say that you are, because uh, if it's about building up a new, a new world with new, better structures, you are innately a part of that in, in that one of your jobs is being a mom to this next generation of people who are going to help change the world. So uh, oh my ask my kid, all I do is shout about this, you know, don't be a part of any of this, you know, these constructs, like stay outside of it, blaze your own path. Yeah, but I, I love that. I think that's a beautiful, and that's like empathy as activism as that, that, that is being taught to the next generation. Yeah, they're definitely all, uh, all about that. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so cool to just walk into a classroom now of teenagers and like just see the true individualism. You know, like when I was a kid, everybody, you know, coveted the same Gap jeans, you know, and wanted the same Gap logoed sweatshirt, you know, and like look like a bunch of clones. Yep. And, uh, you know, now the kids are just so more expressive and, and uh, you know, their style is very singular, you know, and, and, and uh, how cool is that? Like that, even that breaking away from this, you know, mass media driven, you know, luxury brand thing, you know, that isn't cool to them. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what's required, you know, um, is that the, the kids who are of the age to be advertised to think that what's cool is being kind. Think that what's cool yeah. is being different and individual. Exactly. It's um, a good sign. I want to ask you because uh, as I was, as I was doing a little bit of background research on you and your writing, I, I know that you wrote a lot about, about tech and, and the future of tech. And hmm. I wonder what would be your dream for, for the future of tech? Like what is your utopia of tech? What does that look like? I mean, I think that my dear friend Jumana is, I, I basically would edit copy, edit paste her <laughs> entire answer here. I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, what is tech really, right? Like it's a, it's a really diverse group of, of, uh, of people who are engineers all over the world, right? Like there's just like, that's a, 
you know. And then there's these venture capitalist guys that control where all the money goes, uh, who gets the attention, who gets the tech press working behind them, who gets the funding, and really what the goal of the company is going to be. Um, and I think that in a better world, there is not only more democratized funding for women, for people of color, mm-hmm. who are completely left out of this opportunity. And like I was just reading an article in the Atlantic about the startup masterclass, which is cool. I've taken a masterclass and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kid like had an idea that was a word, you know, and had no business plan and no experience. And like a VC just gave him $500,000. Like it doesn't happen to women, you know, it doesn't happen to people of color. And so, you know, I think changing that model, it's so, it would be so easy to disrupt. That's the other thing. Like, I think that because tech is, is, is non-rival goods, right? So in economic terms, if, uh, if a rival good is like a can of soda, right? If I, if I start a soda making factory, I've got to hire the labor to make cans of soda into infinity because presumably people are drinking it. A non-rival good is just like you make it one time and it can be copied into infinity for gotcha. all the population, right? So it's non-rival. So that basically means that like, let's take Facebook it seems really ominous until you realize that, you know, there is a version of us all getting on a different app that somebody builds, you know, because Instagram's where the real money is, right? So it's not Instagram. It's a clone of Instagram. It's like Signal, right? It's a nonprofit. It uh, doesn't really have a lot of whiz bang, but it functions. Right. Um, when somebody signals Instagram, it will destroy shareholder value for Facebook. And, you know, how hard is that to do? Like, I'm not an engineer. I don't know the answer to that question, but I can't believe it's like super impossible to make a Instagram-like object. You know, nonprofit, no advertising version of a photo sharing tool that we can all use to share photos with each other. Because mm-hmm. that would work. And it's definitely possible. I think you're right. Oh, Something sure. that, benefits, that benefits more people. Um, I mean, look at Signal. You know how much of the world goes around because of Signal? Like the whole White House is on signal, right? Mm-hmm. Like people don't even think about the size of some of these nonprofit companies, yeah. you know? And like signal is, is how reporters get their scoops. It's how, you know, the information in your newspaper is verified and stories are formed. And it's how powerful people communicate in an encrypted medium. It's not a company. It's a nonprofit. You know, or it's not a for-profit company. It's not, they're, they're you know, and it's, it's like we can, we need more signals and way less Facebooks. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, Jess, before we, before we close up, I wanted to ask regarding the craft of writing, because it's a very private and, and intimate practice. I wonder if you could talk about how how empathy comes into the writing itself, whether it's about like working with editors or like making compromises with the team or the research that goes into it. Where does empathy come into the practice of writing for you? Oh man, it's everything. I think, um, well, I write nonfiction. Speaking of a lack of empathy, my, do- my guard dog is saving me from probably a very scary <laughs> intruder like a squirrel. I'm just gonna <laughs> let her out to go and be her unempathetic (laughs) so yes empathy in writing so for nonfiction, it's really easy because i think you know 99 percent of the time when you want to tell a story about some people that aren't you but were real 
it's because you empathize with them, you know, and there's not really a lot of people who are like, oh, I, I really want to tell this, you know, story because I don't have any empathy for the, for some of the people involved with it, you know? Um, so I, that's, you're, you're immersing yourself in the lives of, you know, other people and trying to understand their motives. Um, our showrunner on our show, Diana Sun, who is a very famous playwright and is one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. She oozes empathy. She's like a little tiny person mm -hmm. and she's, but her emphasize her empathy is like, fills the room and then oozes into the walls. I love that. Um, so she is addictively empathetic. People absolutely love her. She's an electromagnet for empathy. She creates empathy. Like it's all just a, the, the whole writing process of our show is just powered by an empathy engine. But I would say that on the individual, the lonely parts of the, you know, script draft writing or your, you know, you've got your pages you've got to do and you've got your time to do them. And it's really, a lot of the hours are spent alone, even when you write in a group, which I really, really value. I love being around other writers and just to, the pressure relief of the laughter alone is invaluable, but mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're going into the skin of these people and you're just really, really trying your damnedest to imagine what it is that they felt in a moment that, you know, happened. And the crazy part about it is when you get it right. <laughs> because when you're then, when you're writing a scene and you're like, okay, so I know, you know, this person was in this store on this day and that this exchange happened, you know, cause they got fired. I'm going to write it. And then you write, you know, you think about it obsessively for hours and days and, you know, you, you dream about it and then you are fact checking it or a new source comes forward or you find a newspaper article you hadn't seen before that details exactly what really line by line happened and you get it like so close <laughs> like you didn't even know how accurate it was um we've had that experience a few times and that's really really uncanny because it teaches you this wonderful lesson about empathy and about you know position as a human being which is that we're all not quite as uh, you know unique snowflakes as sometimes individualism in America would like you to believe like we're just we're people with needs that when put in certain situations you know react and so that it's a really fascinating thing to learn it's really crazy to be like wow I really I really thought I knew what you know this person was thinking and then like talk to someone who knew that person or talk to that person and like you were right I love that so much it's almost like yeah, we are more, we are closer to each other than we think. We're more yeah. in touch with each other than we think. And if we really try, if we really try, we can absolutely put ourselves in the shoes of that person and feel what they were feeling in that moment and concoct words that were pretty damn close to, you know, what they actually said, how they actually reacted. So yeah, the alchemy of that is, is pretty cool. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. I want to end with, uh, I, I've been ending with um, a question from the Zany app, uh, because of course Zany is a, is a conversation engineer that is the umbrella under which we are doing this podcast. Um, it's an app for Slack, and each week uh, a, a non-work-related question will come out that teams can answer and help to get to know each other better as people. So the question I've chosen for you, Jess Kimball Leslie, is what fictional world would you like to try living in? Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I, I would like to think I would thrive in the environment of, of 30 Rock. I think that I would really, 
Like I, I would, I'd be able to, you know, I could be one of those like slovenly writers at the table who never says anything. Like I'm pretty close to Lutz as far as like charm goes. Sure. Uh, or lack thereof. I, I think, yeah, I think I could be a real power player with, um, in that universe. And I guess, a, hmm, Arrested Development as well, maybe. Oh yeah. I mean, I would be on Arrested Development too, but... I feel like I'd want to be one degree of separation from the family so I could like watch them. Yeah. Be, be, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. No, it's definitely, um, it's funny. Cause I, I've, that's been my whole challenge this summer. I've been trying to read more um, fiction because mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, you know, what's bad when like someone's like, what novels have you read that you've really liked recently? And you're like, Oh, I'm a writer. So like, I should probably have an answer to that question about books, you know? And then you're like, I think the last time I read a novel was like, 1987. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to read one of those novel things. <laughs> so I'm like, fictional world. I'm like, now I can tell you a million like periods in history I'd love to live in. But that was a good question. That was, yeah. like, <laughs> that was a challenge. That was a good one. <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for joining me on What's Betwixt Us. You are a delight. You are a total delight. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to episode 13 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. You can find Jess Kimball Leslie on LinkedIn and read up about Kings of America in Deadline, IndieWire, or wherever you get your media news. Stay tuned to Netflix for the upcoming series release. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app human first everything else after human first everything else